Hello everyone, I hope everyone's doing well and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Now as some of you may have noticed, it's we've had quite a bit of a break in terms of time from this episode to the previous one. Uh, you know, all the writers and admins of the rationalstandard.com unfortunately do not do this as our full-time jobs and we do have other things in our lives which kind of get in the way sometimes. Uh, but regardless, I had a very interesting chat on today's podcast. My guest today, I was very honored to have a chat with one of my personal favorite economists, a guy by the name of Darvi Root. Darvi is the author of Tax Lies and Red Tape, a very excellent book that I would highly recommend to people. It gives a really easy to understand way of uh, explaining economic concepts, which I think are you know very difficult and require a bit of study. But at the same time, Darvi just does an excellent job of explaining them. Uh, that's just his book, but he also is uh, the economist uh, at the Efficient Group, and he has some very, very interesting ideas, and so with a lot of stuff going on in South Africa recently, I thought I'd ask his advice and his opinions on some of the things. I think he gives some really, really excellent explanations here, by the way, and so as usual, please subscribe to us on iTunes, and give Rational Standard a like on Facebook, and to do- enjoy today's episode. And we're here on the Rational Standard podcast with uh, one of my personal favorite South African economists, Dovi Rowe. Dovi, thank you very much for being on the show. How are things going there in Johannesburg? Absolutely amazing. Thank you very much and uh, good evening or good afternoon to you. Well, that's uh, really good news, but I, I, I fear that some of the things we'll be talking about won't be quite as good as that. So, you know, uh, <laughs> your, your area of expertise are the sort of macro side of, of economics. And I'm, I'm just a, a layman. I've studied Ecos 101 here at my university. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, you know, a few things. And you gave a very interesting talk at the Free Market Foundation recently on our uh, last budget. Um, now, one of the most controversial things that's happened recently is that uh, there's been an announcement that they uh, have increased VAT to 15%. Now, uh, I was very interested by this because it seems to me that in a country where you have so many poor people buying something which has this, you know, the stuff which has that, that's probably the, the most tax which the poor pay in this country. Mm. Um, why on earth would the government be so desperate to increase a, a what is a, a regressive tax and something that's obviously, as we can see now, very uh, unpopular? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It's because they're absolutely desperate. They need really need money, and that is certainly the last the last tax that they are going to increase after they've uh, increased it about all the other taxes. Of course, there are going to be some other tax increases over the next couple of years as well. But maybe one can just unpack it. Um, And uh, and they talk about whether the increase in that, whether that was a good idea or not. Now, I am totally against any kind of tax. All taxes are always bad. But some taxes are worse than other taxes. Now, for instance, a personal income tax, and especially a progressive kind of tax, is certainly significantly worse than, than a flat tax or a poll tax or a value-added tax, as an example. So if you really have to increase a tax, I would prefer to increase a value-added tax, as an example, as a, uh, to, to a personal, personal income tax or a company tax. So from that point of view, a value-added tax is one of the well, least bad taxes uh, to increase, but the reality is, is that the reason why we need, why the, 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 the Minister of Finance decided to increase taxes generally, it's not only that that he increased, he increased a number of other taxes as well. But why he decided to increase that simply because they ran out of money, and they ran out of money because they've been spending like crazy, and they've been spending like crazy, especially on people and, and especially on this army of civil servants working for us. In fact, with the last couple of days, we've heard about the, the different trade unions. 
haggling about uh, wage increases to, for the civil servants, and eventually they seem to be settling around about 7% or so wage increase to the civil servants. And there are between 1 and 3 million civil servants working for us, and depending on your definition. And, uh, and the most of these civil servants are you, uh, hopelessly overpaid and hopelessly underworked. Of course, there are many civil servants that are hopelessly overworked and hopelessly underpaid, but the majority of them are simply there for a very easy ride. And in order to keep on paying this army of civil servants, you need to get money somewhere, and you get it from the easy sources, and easy sources are things like, for example, uh, corporate taxes and personal income taxes and a fuel levy. That's another relatively easy source of tax. And, of course, when you run out of uh, revenue sources, then you have to go for those unpopular taxes. And a value-added tax was one of those unpopular taxes. So whenever politicians start increasing one of those unpopular taxes, you have to know that they're really running out of options, and that's where we are today in South Africa. Well, you know, I think it's a very, uh, yeah, well, I, I fully agree. I think you'll find I'm in a similar uh, political and economic uh, stripe as yourself. But I wanted to ask you a little bit, go into a little bit about uh, increasing value-added tax or some kind of consumption tax as opposed to an income tax. Now, I heard you say in your talk that, and you can correct me if I'm getting it mixed up here, that yeah. South Africa is a developing country and developing economies should have, I think it was, more indirect taxation and less direct taxation. Was that correct? Yeah, let me just maybe uh, let me let's just get the theory right here. What 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 is the what is the optimal tax mix or what is the the best the tax regime that one can get? Yeah, and theory and this of course the, all of this is theory. So let's just understand what the best tax is. And one of the requirements for a good tax regime is a tax that is. Neutral. Now, what is meant by a neutral tax or tax regime is a tax regime that doesn't get people to do more things or less things. So, you know, it doesn't encourage people to do certain things and it certainly does not discourage people to do certain things. So, neutrality is one of those very important requirements for a good tax regime. But exactly because taxes are non-neutral, politicians quite often use taxes to achieve certain social and political objectives. And a very good example is the, ta the so-called sin taxes. Politicians, for some re weird reason, reckon that they, they got much better insights into our lives and they want to encourage us to smoke less, as an example, or to drink less. For that reason, they use taxes. Uh, in order to, to discourage us from smoking more or uh, you, uh, drinking more alcohol and so on. In the meantime, of course, that's a very handy source of revenue. But the official reason is that they're using these sort of taxes to discourage us, to, to, to adopt more, well, better habits. Okay, But, but the, the theory tells us that taxes should be neutral as much as possible. But, of course, that's never going to happen. That's never going to fly because uh, the reality is, is that um, if you have uh, taxes that are completely neutral, the only tax that is as neutral as possible is a so-called poll tax. And that means everybody pays a thousand rand per month whether you've got a job or not. Now, politically, that's going to be a very difficult thing to sell. But we've got a, a sort of a mix of something that is not completely neutral, and that is where other kinds of taxes come in. So the most, the most uh, theoretically, the best tax is, is the poll tax. But that's not going to fly, fly uh, theoretically. So the next level, uh, or if, uh, fly in practical terms, so the next level is to have an, an absolute uh, uh, or a relative neutral tax. And that means everybody's going to pay exactly, in the relative terms, the same. That means you're going to pay 10% of your income to the state, and I'm going to pay 10% uh, of my income. And that means in the relative terms, we are all more or less the same mark. But the, the, this idea of a progressive uh, equality... 
That is something that simply has no basis in theory. Uh, and for some weird reason, politicians reckon that if you earn more, you have to pay more. And there's absolutely no basis in theory for this. Because if you, if, if you assume that rich people or more productive people need to pay more, then you also must assume that the marginal utility of money for everybody is exactly the same, and it certainly is not. So that's what politicians that's, So that's more or less the background uh, for, for, for taxes. With that sort of background, what should a developing country do? And, and I think the answer to that is, of course, you can't do an absolute um, uh, equal tax, like, for example, a poll tax. That's politically going to be very difficult to do that. Then you have to do a, the second best kind of options. And the second best, best kind of options are usually indirect taxes. Things like, for example, a value-added tax or a fuel levy, for example, sin taxes, which I don't like, is also an example of a so-called indirect tax. And only at the last instance should you really go for the direct taxes, things like, for example, personal income tax and corporate taxes and so on. So theoretically, a developing economy like South Africa should, uh, should uh, uh, put more emphasis on indirect taxes, like, for example, VAT and some taxes and so on, and much less emphasis on direct taxes, like, for example, personal income taxes. But if you look at the tax mix in South Africa, it's exactly the opposite. Personal income tax is by far the most important tax to the Minister of Finance, contributing roughly about a third of the total tax tax, uh, tax state, followed by the most important indirect tax, and that is value-added tax, and followed in by the third most important revenue source for the Minister of Finance, and that's corporate taxes. So, so I'm afraid the mix is completely wrong. If you look at other countries, if you look at the rich world, like, for example, the Europeans, they have exactly this. So they, they, their most important revenue source there is certainly personal income taxes followed by the other taxes, while other countries, like, for example, other African countries typically will make, uh, will, will, will use more indirect taxes as the main source of revenue to the Minister of Finance. So we've got things completely upside down. Well, that is a you know it's an interesting way of thinking about it in terms of neutrality. I have to admit I've never quite thought of it uh, in, in in those uh, senses before. Can I ask you? You briefly mentioned um, I can't remember the marginal utility of money uh, is different across uh, different income uh, uh, spectrums. Yeah. Um, can, can I ask you to expand a, a, a little bit on that? I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at the topic. Can I ask just to, for you to just explain what you meant by the marginal utility of money? I don't think we often hear it quite like that. Yeah, well, okay, the marginal utility of money. Let's assume we are all exactly the same. We are all clones. Uh, then uh, if I have 10 rand, my 10 rand will mean to me exactly the same as uh, the same as 10 rand to you. So if you take one rand of my 10 rand, I will feel exactly the same sort of pain if the politician is going to take one rand of your 10 rand as, of money as an example. But people, are, individuals are different. Uh, some in, individuals may decide, listen, I've got 100 rand and I really don't care about money because I'm much more interested in sitting somewhere and doing yoga and meditate and I'm not interested in money. That person's utility or his value for money is less than a person that, that, that reckons money is much more important. Some other individuals will spend much more time and will put a much higher value on money. So if one makes the assumption that a 10% tax on A is exactly the same as a 10% tax on B, as an example, then you must assume that the utility or the value of money uh, of A and of B is exactly the same. And that is by assuming that all individuals are exactly the same. And we are not. We have different preferences. We've got different tastes. We've got, we look at the life differently. And of course, we've got different values that we place in money, as an example. So this is completely illogical 
example, and it's completely wrong for a politician simply to say because somebody's richer, therefore he should be paid, he should be taxed more, uh, simply because he's got more money. Maybe some individuals um, got more value, or they they reckon their money is worth more or even less. And it's even possible if you really want to have a neutral system to tax in some instances as a person with a smaller income more than a person with a higher income. Because it's quite possible, and I can think of an instance where a person with a low income is more interested in other things in life. He's more interested in arts, and he's more interested in walking in nature, and he's not really interested in the money. And that instance, where that person should be taxed more in order, uh, in terms of his utility of money, uh, to put the same burden on him than, for example, a person that earns a lot, but puts much more value on what money is worth to that specific individual. So that, that is a fundamental flaw in assuming that 10% is the same for you and 10% is the same for me. It simply is not the case. And for that reason, I say that progressive income tax, as an example, has absolutely no basis in theory and certainly no basis in philosophy. Well, that is a very, very, I have to say, very, very intriguing way of thinking of it in terms of marginal uh, utility of money. Yeah. I never quite considered that before. Now, I'd like to go back to what you mentioned uh, when you said the mix of taxation. Um, how would you, how does South Africa compare in terms of how highly is it taxed as opposed to uh, a place like the United States uh, and other first world countries? Uh, and then also as opposed to, let's say, other sub-Saharan African countries at the moment. How, yeah. how, how are our taxes? Yeah, there are two answers to that. I can give you the answer now. We tax and now we compare to other countries in the world and now in terms of that total tax burden and the mix of different taxes and so on. That's, that's how we can unpack that. But secondly, uh, you know, people tend to look at the te- tax burden and say that we pay X percentage of our income tax or X percent of GDP to taxes. But there's another way and a better way of looking what the actual tax burden on the economy is, and that is instead of looking on how much the, the politicians stuff out of pocket by way of the various taxes, it's more important to look at total uh, state expenditure, total state, state, uh, state spending, because state spending is usually more than a, a tax stack. And the difference between how much they collect by way of the different taxes and the amount of money that they actually spend is referred to as the so-called fiscal debt. And that is the amount of money that the state or politicians borrow on our behalf. But that borrowing will have to be repaid sometime in the future. So it's a postponement of taxes. So whenever the politicians or, or the state borrows money, it is actually a tax, but it's a tax that's going to live on us sometime in the future. And for that reason, it's better rather to look at total tax state spending uh, and, and say that is actually equal, equal to the total tax burden on the economy. And if you use that approach to total tax burden on the economy, South Africa's tax burden is probably around, and I'm talking only about the, the, the national government or central government, is around about 33-34% of GDP compared to the total tax stake which is around about 30% or just below 30% of GDP. So I think that's important to understand. Another point that is very important is not only how much taxes you pay, it's what you actually get back from those taxes. And I've made a lot of calculations, and the guys paying the tax in South Africa are mostly not the guys getting the benefits from the tax. In fact, and this is IMF numbers, 
The South Africa's fiscus is the most redistributive fiscus in the world. And that means that the guys paying the tax are simply not getting the benefits and that money goes somewhere else. I've done a couple of calculations and one of the numbers that I've calculated, and this is about four or five years ago or so, if you earn a million rand and for every one rand that you pay to the Minister of Finance by way of the various taxes, and I included all the taxes, for that rand tax that you pay, you get back less than five cents in the form of goods and services from the state. So the state in South Africa is exceptionally redistributive, and I assume that the state is effective and efficient, which is certainly not the case. But trying to get back to your answer, so how does the mix yeah. look like in South Africa? So, so I think uh, an important point is don't look at the, the mix necessarily, and don't look at the tax burden necessarily. There are many other factors that need to be considered as well. But if you look at South Africa, so the total tax burden on national government is about 30% to GDP, and many other countries in the world, especially the European, especially the Scandinavian countries, their total tax burden is around about 50% to GDP. But there are very differences, and some of these differences are, for instance, in Sweden, you pay a lot of taxes, but that money goes to the state, and the state uses this money to give to the private sector health, the private sector education um, sector, and they spend turn away, certainly, it is a tax, but the money is being spent by the private sector in the end. Um, uh, so the, the redistribution effect of, of taxes or the fiscus in, in Sweden, as an example, is significantly less than what we have in South Africa. Uh, but South Africa, if you look at the tax mix in South Africa, we usually compare better with, uh, with the world, like the Europeans and the Americans. So, so South Africa's tax mix looks pretty much like that of a, a, a rich country. But if you compare South Africa to countries like, for example, India and rest of Sub-Saharan Africa and so on, then South Africa's tax mix looks completely different. Countries like Sub-Saharan Africa, they have other taxes that are far more important to them. And again, it depends on what country you're talking about. In the case of Angola, as an example, yeah. they are very much dependent on taxes like, for example, the, the exports of oil, because oil belongs to the government in, in Angola. Now, whether that is a tax or not, we can debate that. But South Africa, certainly the tax mix in South Africa looks much more like that of a developed or a rich country and, and, and less uh, than uh, the, our peers, like, for example, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Do you think that uh, signs of this sort of taxation in South Africa, combined with the fact that the government would actually go to the extent of increasing VAT, which, as we've seen, how unpopular that is, yeah. maybe initial signs of austerity uh, coming to South Africa? And I don't exactly know about that situation, but maybe you could also mention that. Yeah, what is, what is austerity? What does it mean? And I hear the word consolidation all the time. What does that mean? Um, the, the, the Minister of Finance keeps on telling us that he needs to keep on consolidating the fiscal accounts. Now, in my book, consolidation of the fiscal accounts means well, things are not getting worse, <laughs> uh, if I can use that as a definition. Now, what I can tell you is that South Africa's fiscal debt position yeah, has, well, it has exploded. Uh, and today, the, 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 the fiscal debt relative to the, to the economy or fiscal debt relative to GDP is around about 55%. That's the total debt of the state in comparison to the size of the economy. Now, that's not that high. Uh, many other countries, like the many European countries, even countries like, for example, the Germans, and certainly the Americans, and so their debt levels are in excess of 100% to GDP. So it's certainly not that high. But in South Africa, 
we pay 10, or, well, we pay around about 8, 9% if we want to borrow money in 10 years, while the Americans pay 3%. So it's not only your debt burden or your total uh, total uh, uh, debt relative to GDP that matters, it's also the cost of this debt. And South Africa's price that we pay for this debt is, well, much, much higher than many other countries in the world. And if I had a look at some other countries, compare South Africa uh, to countries like, for example, the British countries, and the country that is the worst off in terms of debt, plus the price of that money, in other words, interest that they pay in this debt, is actually India. India is actually worse off than South Africa. The Japanese is another very good example. Their debt-to-GDP ratio is in excess of 250%. But the interest that they pay in their debt is just about nothing. Um, but so we can talk about whether what's the correct level of debt to GDP, and the rule of thumb is usually around about six percent. More than sixty percent becomes a bit of a uh, becomes a bit of a problem. I've got a different approach to this. Yeah. I don't think debt to GDP is that important. I think more important is rather the change in the level of debt to GDP. And what we've done in South Africa, when Trevor Manuel took over as Minister of Finance in nineteen ninety six. The state debt GDP to GDP was 52%, and it took him approximately 17 years to half that, to bring it down to 25, actually below 25% to GDP. 17 years. Within a manner of many, within a matter of about seven years, and that was primarily under Pravin Gordon, uh, state debt to GDP is back there up at uh, 50% or in excess of 50% to GDP again. So it's the change in debt that really matters. And I think what also important, especially in South Africa, it's not only how much money the state owns, it's also uh, uh, you have to include the guarantees. And in the case of South Africa, that's the guarantees to the state-owned enterprises. I mean, that ESCO is a total disaster. We have South African Airways is a complete disaster. And then the list just goes on and yeah. on. And if you include all those guarantees, then the total debt to GDP for the state in South Africa is actually around about 70% to GDP. And that's one of the most important reasons why we recently saw a number of downgrades. And I'm afraid in the current financial year, the fiscal deficit, which is the difference between state spending and state revenue, is probably going to be about 3% to GDP, while economic growth is going to be around about 1.5%, which simply means that debt to GDP ratio, that ratio is likely to keep on going up around 2% every year. Uh, until one of these things happen, until we can bring the borrowing down or until we can get economic growth the, or the economy to grow faster. But I'm afraid that's unlikely to happen. So I'm afraid we are in for a difficult time because the state's finances is without a doubt heading for a so-called debt up. And once that happens, then I'm afraid all sort of ugly things is going to happen to the economy. In linking to this, uh, I hope you don't mind if I ask you one brief question, which is a little bit more political than it may be economic. But South Africa is, at least uh, compared to a few countries in the West that I've seen, South Africa vests quite a lot of authority on its uh, financial fiscal matters in the executive branch of government. I know in the United States you see Congress constantly having to pass appropriations, bills on spending. And uh, as a result, we see senators like recently Rand Paul in the United States had a, yeah. a spending bill which would have balanced their budget in five years, which is quite remarkable considering where the, the U.S. has gone um, from Bush to Obama to yeah. now even Trump. It's increased much more. Um, do you think that perhaps if South Africa had a system of government which vested a little bit more of the powers of the FIS, uh, to tax and, and spend in the legislature as opposed to the executive, we wouldn't see such a, a drastic increase in spending as we have? 
Yeah, I've got a, I've got a slightly, I've got another suggestion, and I, let's call it the fiscal board, right. and um, and maybe we should consider this. Uh, let me explain to you what I mean by that. We have an institution called the South African Reserve Bank, and the South African Reserve Bank, uh, according to our constitution, at least, it is independent in terms of monetary policy. So that's a good thing because the South African Reserve Bank is a counterweight. Uh, to the fiscal authority. So the Minister of Finance starts spending money like crazy, like they have been doing the last couple of years. Then that will add to the inflationary pressures in the economy, and the Reserve Bank's responsibility is to make sure that inflation remains within a certain band, between 3 and 6% in South Africa. So that's a nice check and balance that we have in South Africa. But what if we create another institution? Now, let's call it the fiscal board, and we give the fiscal board, like the South African Reserve Bank, independence and we give them one instrument like the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank basically has got one instrument and that's interest rate and we give this fiscal board one instrument and it is, for example, value-added tax. Now, the, the, we, and then we instruct the fiscal board that their responsibility is to make sure that the fiscal accounts, in other words, state revenue, uh, VIV, state, uh, state, expense, state expenses, is always balanced over the cycle. And what I mean by the cycle is the economic cycle. Let's call it five years. So the fiscal board, which is an independent institution, they have to, when they see, and based on their calculations, and it can be done, we do it all the time, uh, when they see, for instance, that the fiscal deficit is going to go up, and over the period of, say, five years, we are going to run into a fiscal deficit, then the fiscal board will unilaterally increase value-added tax. It's not a political decision. It's simply a technical decision by a technical board called the fiscal board. And they assure or they make sure that we always have a fiscal balance over the period of, say, for example, five years. If, this, if it becomes clear that it's a fiscal surplus, then they, they can reduce value-added tax. Because unfortunately, politicians, and let's have some sympathy with politicians, but I think that the dilemma that politicians are always faced with is that everybody wants everything from the state, but nobody wants to contribute to the state. Let's take some of that responsibility away from politicians and give it to an independent board, let's call it a fiscal board, and they then use one instrument, they added that, in, to make sure that the fiscal accounts are always balanced over the, over the period. Now, I know that the Americans got a slightly different approach, and I think it's a bit unfair to compare South Africa to the Americas for a number of reasons. One the most important reason is simply that America is big and the American dollar is basically the world's currency. And because the most of the rest of the world uses the American dollar, we are basically paying, we all are paying a huge tax to the Americans. So they can they can get away with much, much more than countries like, for example, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is exactly the same as the Americans, and in the process Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe destroyed their own currency, but the American dollar is still there. And it's simply because the US dollar is seen as the world's currency. But, but the reality is, is that, you know, politicians, there's always a lot of pressure on politicians and let's try to take some of this conflict away by putting some of these decisions not in the hands of politicians, but in the hands of a bunch of, of, of technocrats to make a decisions on, like what I've just explained, for example, the rate of value attacks in order to make sure that the fiscal balances are balanced over a period. 
I think that's a very interesting idea. I don't think I've actually heard uh, that uh, the idea of a sort of a fiscal board being mentioned before, but it, it could be an interesting, I think, uh, suggestion in order to maintain neutrality in this whole thing. Unfortunately, in a country like South Africa, one will inevitably get calls to have it nationalised, as we're seeing with our left-wing politicians. Um, but I, 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 yeah, so that, very interesting. I, now, I hope you don't mind if we move on to uh, some more microeconomics, just sure. because this stuff has been in the news recently. And the thing uh, I want to ask you about is the minimum wage. Now, you know, this seems to me to be such a basic issue of like economics 101, just understanding the effects of price floors and price ceilings. And you could go more into detail, but the, the reason I'm asking you about it is it's become uh, in the spotlight recently because there was a bit of going about on Twitter between Gillett Isaacs, who was the guy from uh, Wits University, yeah. who was heading up the research into the new national minimum wage, and a few DA members, since the DA has now said, or at least a few of their members have said that they are opposing it, or sorry, not opposing it, but going uh, in favor of job seeker certificates. Now, uh, I'm seeing two arguments here on the minimum wage in South Africa, which are sort of arguing kind of past each other. The one is the theory and this is the sort of thing you'll learn in classical economics and Ecos 101, the, the problem with having yeah. a price floor uh, and, and elasticity of labor as if labor is just any other sort of product. Yeah. And uh, the response to that by Gillard Isaacs is he just says, well, you know, we've done the research and according to our research, uh, this minimum wage which we have decided uh, will not uh, cause any significant uh, unemployment. Um, so I suppose my question to you as a professional economist is how do you reconcile these two things? Because they both seem to have a bit of value. I mean, this guy did a research and I, I've got no reason to think that he was lying about it. Um, so how does one reconcile these, the theory and the practice? Yeah, I think there are a couple of issues that to be mentioned about this. Well, first of all, there was this, there was this study done by Bits and there was a study done by UCT as well. And they came to com two completely conclusions on this. But the conclusions were basically in the same direction. In the case of this, they reckon there will be job losses, but not significant now. Uh, and in the case of UCT, they, their conclusion was that there will be quite a number of job losses. So the point is that I'm trying to make is that we don't really know what's going to happen, but it seems as if there's going to be a job losses. But I think we need to approach this completely differently. And, uh, and I think to, I want to uh, include in the debate one or two other variables as well. All right. And the one is, and the one is a so-called, you know, a good job or a uh, or a or this, the, the, uh, 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 what's it with a, a, a good job with a good revenue. Yeah. Uh, and and the, and the second one uh, has to do uh, with well, of course, with the minimum wage. And the second one has to do with job creation as well. Uh, and and I think what is important is to just let's be realistic about a couple of things. First of all, is that when, whenever politicians want to sound populist or when, when they want to sell, say something that but is very popular, of course, is that they want to create jobs. And look at just just before an election, you get these these, these slogans on the on the lampels saying jobs, jobs, jobs. Well, that's the stupidest thing that anybody can think of, because in the history of mankind, we have never, ever wanted to create jobs, because if you really want to create jobs, it's very easy to create jobs. And a stupid example is that we simply have to ban cars, and if we ban cars, we all are going to ride horses, and if you ride horses, you're going to use at least 25% of your total agricultural production to feed horses. 
and you're going to use a lot of people to uh, people to build little buggies for the horses to uh, to be drawn by horses and to look after horses and to clean up the uh, up after horses and so on. So 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 we do not want to create jobs. We in fact we want to destroy jobs. And the point I'm trying to make here is that whenever you talk about job creations, uh, politicians actually confuse two things. They think if you keep people busy that those are actually jobs. That is not the case. Uh, the only way that you can really create, well, in inverted commas, sustainable jobs is through economic growth. Now, my company, where I work, and we've started this company in 2001, and today we have 500 people working for us. Not one single person was employed because I wanted to create a job. We employ these people because we don't have a choice. Because the economy and my company has been growing and we need more people to service our clients. And the only reason why I employ more people is simply because the economy, and in this case our company, has been growing. So please, stop with this nonsense about job creation. And then the second point, a so-called decent job. And the best way to get a decent job, to find a good job, the only way to get a good job is to get a job. And it even means if you can get a job that pays you nothing. Because if you really want to enter the job market, the best way of entering the job market is to take any kind of job. And I'm afraid with these different legislations and with these different rules and minimum wages, without a doubt, it's going to be more difficult to get people employed. And that means this whole process of starting at the bottom and getting even a zero-paid job, but only to get the entrance into the job market. It's going to make it more difficult, especially for the young in South Africa, for the youth in South Africa. And they're not going to get the opportunity to enter the job market because entering the job market is far more important than getting a decent job because the best way of getting a decent job is to get a job to start off with. Very interesting thoughts about that. And I, it reminds me actually of the analogy, uh, I don't know if this is a true story or just like a little parable about the guy walking past ditch diggers who were using old equipment. And he says, oh, why aren't these people using modern technology? He goes, no, 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 they're not. This is not, uh, we're not trying to build a canal here. We're just, this is a jobs program. So he said, oh, why do you have them use spades and not teaspoons? And uh, I suppose it's, exactly. <laughs> it's a similar, exactly. similar analogy to that. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's an interesting yeah. way of looking at the situation. Now, if you don't mind me jumping straight onto a, a bit of a different topic sure. here. You know, land expropriation is this now hot topic in South Africa. Nothing's happened as of yet, but we've just had this resolution passed in Parliament. You obviously, as a professional economist, are in the thick of all the statistics and stuff. Um, now, I know a lot of economics these days is about speculation, and, and a lot of the time it's about what people think is going to happen, and then on top of that, what people think that other people think is going to happen. Uh, to your uh, understanding, has the mere talk about land expropriation without compensation had negative effects in South Africa? And the reason I ask that is because we see now Sir Ramaphosa also going overseas to Switzerland and various places and saying that yeah. South Africa is open for business. We want to have business with the world. And then he comes here and says, well, your property rights are at stake. Uh, so what, what is the uh, evidence from the ground? Yeah, let's just translate this. What does it mean, expropriation without compensation? In my book, that means simple theft. You've got to take something away from uh, from an owner. But unfortunately, in the case of South Africa, we've got a history and there's all sort of things that we need to keep uh, keep an eye on. And maybe let's, let's just be honest about this. Let's just unpack that. 
And the reality is South Africa certainly does have a history, and it's a history that we need to address in one way or the other. But history needs to start somewhere. And if you decide that you're going to take the land away and give it to the rightful owners, who are the rightful owners? And, and uh, I know that's going to be a very difficult uh, question to answer because I think in the end, and I'm quite interested in anthropology, for example, and I think the answer in the end must be that everything in South Africa should belong to the Sun people because they were here first. Um, so history's got to start somewhere, and if you expropriate land, uh, it's probably going to end up in the hands of the politicians, in the hands of the state, and it's not going to end up in the hands of, of individuals. The point I'm trying to make is that the primary function of the state, there are two primary functions of the state. First of all, the state must look after the people. That means that they have to protect me and make sure that people do not walk around and kill me, as an example. The second op uh, uh, function of the state is to make sure that they protect my stuff, my property. Those are the things that they're supposed to be doing. And if anybody... Uh, if anything has been stolen from anybody, then it is the responsibility of the state to give that property back to that individual, the rightful owner of that. Provided you can you can find out who the rightful owner is. So I absolutely support that. If there's a process whereby we can find out who the right correct owners are of a piece of land or whatever it might be, then the right owners, the correct owners, should be given back that property. That is the function and that is what the state should be doing. Unfortunately, it's not practically possible to do this because in most instances, we just don't know. And in many instances, there were no real owners before this. So I'm afraid this whole thing uh, has become more of an ideological thing than anything else. And, I, and I've spoken to international um, investors. I've spoken to international press people all the time. And they are very concerned about this because the way they understand that, and that's why I understand it, is that the state is threatening to take people's assets. And it's not about land only. It's about all assets. And unfortunately, what's probably going to happen, and remember, the South African government are a bunch of Leninists, primarily. And Lenin, and that is what the, Lenin differs from Karl Marx, is that Lenin believes in the centralization of power. Karl Marx actually believed that the power should be with the people. Lenin said, no, people are stupid. We can't allow people to make decisions about economics and policy uh, and politics after centralized power. And that's what the South African government is. It's a, it's, a, it's a government under the influence of a bunch of Leninists, and they believe that the state should take all decisions. And the state should, take, should be the owner of all these sort of things. So unfortunately, what's probably going to happen is that they are going to expropriate assets, land, and many other assets, and it's going to end up in the hands of politicians. And as always... Politicians will misallocate these resources because that is the major flaw of communism, is that they misallocate the resources and that will lead to weak economic growth. And unfortunately, as always, it will be the poor that's going to suffer because of this. So yes, let's, 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 let's recognize the fact that we have a certain history. But let's also look at this in practical terms and let's make sure that if any property was ever stolen from anybody, make sure we give it back to that individual, and that's important to the individual. But it's got to start somewhere. And unfortunately, the reality is that it won't be always possible to find out who the original, if there was an, a, a previous owner, whether who the original or the, the previous owners were. And if we can't find out who the previous owners are, well, then the best that we can do is to start the history somewhere. And that means that the people that own property today, registered property as owners, as individual owners, that their property rights must be protected. And that means it must be priority number, uh, number one for the state. 
Well, I fully agree with you on the aspect of restorative land reform. I think that's, uh, you know, very important if we want to be consistent with property rights. And my, you know, my great concern has always been, as you mentioned, it's a Leninist government and the EFF is... Uh, they yeah. put on their Facebook page they're a Marxist-Leninist political party and they don't believe that a single citizen of South Africa should actually have title deeds to land, which I think is very dangerous. Um, I want to ask you about uh, one more point that's just been in the news recently, and that's uh, sure. Ramaphosa has been speaking about the potential for starting up a state bank. Now, the theory about this kind of thing is that when you have a state-owned entity, because it's not profit-driven, it will so-called serve the needs of the people. Uh, now, look, I mean, for me and others in my political circle, this is just like a tried and, and failed thing that has gone on with South African Airways, which I have no idea why we still yeah. go on with South African Airways. It's a bit of a joke. Uh, you know, ESCOM and the list of SOEs goes on and on. Um, I wonder if you could just give a bit more of an intelligent and an economist's uh, perspective on why a state-owned bank uh, may or may not be a good idea. And I also just wanted to ask, you know, globally, how common is this really, a state-owned bank? Uh, that's a state-owned commercial bank. I don't know if that's a contradiction in terms. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, and this is a bit of a, this, this is a very difficult question to answer because you really the question you're asking is what is a bank, and actually what you're asking is what is money, uh, and, and that's all. That's not that clear. What is money? I know, for instance, is that in in Norway they've got a massive sovereign wealth fund. Yeah. And that money is is, is that a, is that a bank or isn't that a bank? Because that money in, a, in the sovereign fund is used to, to buy certain assets. So is that a bank or isn't that a bank? In the case of South Africa, we've got Land Bank as an example. Now, the Land Bank uh, uh, certainly does lend out money. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a bank in a, in, a, in, a, in a narrow sense of the word, but they, they, it is kind of like a bank or the post bank, the post office bank. That is also, it acts like a bank. It's not 100% a bank. Uh, because it belongs to the state, and that's one of the requirements for a bank is that it must be a public uh, a company and not a, 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 well, a, a, a private company and not a public company. And and, and in the case of the uh, – so they, 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 we have a number of state banks in South Africa, but they're not really, really banks. And the only difference that we're going to make if we change the legislation is allow banks to take deposits or the state banks to take deposits. If they take deposits – um, of course, you run the risk that you're going to lose those deposits. And if you run the risk that you're going to lose those deposits, then, of course, nobody's going to make a deposit in those state banks. And if nobody's going to make a deposit in the state banks, then, of course, the state will, will step in and say, listen, I will guarantee these deposits. And that's where all the trouble is going to start. Because that's the state, and that actually means that the taxpayer, the moment they start guaranteeing some uh, commercial actions of the state, Inevitably, what means what it means is that the taxpayer will be on the hook, and eventually, exactly the same what is currently happening to South African Airways and Eskom and all that is going to happen to the state bank as well. It is not a very clever idea, but you know, I don't think it's really that important to debate this because I think what is eventually going to happen, and we've seen this recently, is that there's this new phenomenon. It's called so-called cryptocurrencies or private currencies, yes. <laughs> and I've got, and I've got a suspicion that that's going to overtake. Banks, not only government banks or private banks, banks in general. I think these uh, cryptocurrencies is probably the, the way forward, and we're probably going to see in future that these cryptocurrencies uh, will take over much of the payment systems and savings and lending and so on uh, in economies. And that is exactly where we were about 100 years ago. 100 years ago, 
most monies were actually issued by private banks and not by central banks. Central banks are actually relatively new uh, institutions. And I think this new technology will actually make it possible uh, for, for private money to become a serious competitor to government money and to start competing with each other as well. And I think that's absolutely amazing. Well, I think that's a great note to end off on. I just want to say once again, Davi, thank you very much for chatting to me on the show. As usual, I have loved listening to your uh, talks at the Free Market Foundation, which are on YouTube. Uh, and and I, f- I find your advice on uh, uh, political things in South Africa very, very in- intriguing indeed. You've introduced me to a number of new ideas. So thank you very much, and I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you so much, Nick. Cool. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. Please give Rational Standard a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Rational Stand, or follow myself on Twitter at Nick Babaya. Subscribe to us on iTunes so that you can get updated every single time we upload a new podcast. We have some very, very interesting guests coming up in the future. Hopefully we'll be talking a bit about healthcare in South Africa, as well as a few other issues which I have planned. Uh, But thanks for listening to today's one, and stay tuned. Cheerio.